Afroverdict, brought to you by Sputnik Africa. Hey everyone, welcome to the Afroverdict podcast with your host Victor Alekil. Today we're diving into a topic that has sparked controversy and debate for decades and that is the role of Western financial institutions in addressing the economic challenges faced by African countries. Many African nations have struggled with debt, poverty and instability for years and the IMF and the World Bank have been major players in providing financial assistance and policy guidance. However, some critics argue that the IMF's approach has been ineffective and even counterproductive for African countries. Joining me today is Estehewat Kebret, a development finance advisor at Development Reimagined, who focuses on special drawing rights, multilateral bank reform, uh, the sustainable development goals, as well as African debt. Prior to Development Reimagined, Estehewat had diverse experience in humanitarian and development issues, working in both multilateral organizations as well as international NGOs. Ms. Kebret, thank you for joining me today and welcome to the Afroverde podcast. In an article you wrote uh, dedicated to the IMF, you explained that the International Monetary Fund is the lender of last resort for many countries and the World Bank provides billions in loans and grants to low-income countries. How successful do you think have the international financial institutions been in providing financial support to African states? Yes, thank you. That's a that's that's a really important question. So the IMF is the lender of last resort. Um, what that means is that the IMF is where countries turn to in times of crisis for for urgent financing. And the World Bank, albeit very limited, does provide billions in financing to low and middle income countries. Um, now, both the IMF and the World Bank are essential financial institutions, but the main issue is that they aren't doing enough. Now, there are many things that we speak about at Development Reimagined when discussing the reform of you know, the international financial architecture, which includes major changes to the way that the IMF and the World Bank operate. So I think maybe I can just give a few examples of that. So I think first, one of the best ways to really illustrate this issue um, is in a report that was recently done in 2022 by the Independent Review of Multilateral Development Banks, their capital adequacy frameworks. And this report was an initiative of the Italian presidency of the G20 at the time, where a group of independent experts reviewed these MDBs. And what's interesting is one of the main conclusions that these experts came to is that, you know, the World Bank, along with other multilateral development banks, are very cautious about taking on more risk. And this is primarily due to a focus on the ratings that are given by credit rating agencies. So the report showed that these institutions were not incorporating something called callable capital. Um, which is an instrument that incorporates the commitments of shareholders, where they basically stand by MDBs in case of any financial issue um, or if MDBs are not able to pay off their bondholders. So this callable capital is very important because by incorporating callable capital, which has its own financial value um, as part of their capital adequacy frameworks, 
MDBs can be able to take on more risk. And what that means is that these MDBs can then lend more um, because this capital provides that safety net. So that's just one example of how these MDBs are extremely cautious about taking on more risk, uh, which means less lending for others and for African countries specifically as well. Um, second, um, you know, as most um, as, as most of you know, one of the major development challenges that are faced by African countries is a growing infrastructure financing gap. Now, if we were to let's say look at recent African development bank figures, the infrastructure financing gap is around 130 to 170 billion annually. Um, now, the World Bank, as you know, a critical financial institution, should technically be providing loans for infrastructure, um, and then sometimes it's also referred to as the infrastructure bank. Um, but it has been quite the opposite. Um, the World Bank has actually been avoiding funding infrastructure projects on the continent. Um, so just one simple statistic just to illustrate this. So for instance, the bank has not funded uh, a rail route on the continent since 2002. So, you know, if the bank is not financing projects that are needed, then the bank is not really doing its job efficiently. Um, and what that does mean is that it's not really a reliable partner for the African continent. Um, and this is not to even mention that, you know, the executive boards of these institutions do not even have adequate representation um, of African countries. And that also means that, you know, you're constraining, um, you know, African voices. Um, and I think maybe just to illustrate one more point about, you know, some of these some of these obstacles that come with, you know, the World Bank and IMF and something that we at Development Reimagined often speak about is the, you know, the issue of debt sustainability analysis or for short DSAs, um, which is where the IMF together with the World Bank, they have their own formula. They assess the level of debt distress in a country. Um, they rank these countries from low risk to moderate, high and in debt distress. Um, and as a critical instrument within the IMF and the World Bank, there are many issues with the way that the DSA is structured, um, including, for instance, that you know this analysis is restricted to only poor countries. Um, and these analysis don't really take into account important things such as, you know, how is the government spending their money that they, you know, that's quote unquote their debt, right? So if a country is spending a lot more money on say something like infrastructure, which we know is essential for development and growth and that we know has a positive impact on the economy, then this is something that the DSA should technically be taking into account, um, which it does not. And so, um, and the way that these rankings happen is, you know, if, if a country has a debt to GDP ratio of over 60%, then they're put in this categories. Um, and so, you know, just to, maybe illustrate how biased the system is. If we looked at recent figures, so just 2022 last year, the DSA um, analyzed that there were 79 countries that had debt to GDP ratios of over 60%. Um, and what's really interesting is that from those 79 countries, 23 of them were considered to be high risk uh, or in debt distress. And all 23 of those countries were African. 
And so these frameworks and these analysis are very powerful because when a country is given the rank of, let's say, being you know a high risk or is in debt distress, then that means that foreign investors won't want to invest in that African country. And so these instruments by these by the IMF, by the World Bank, have major consequences for African countries. Um, and unfortunately, we're just, it's sad, but we're not really seeing any major change happening um, anytime soon. And so what this shows really is that the international financial system and these institutions, the World Bank, the IMF, um, including other uh, MTBs, really, in this case, continue to fail the African continent. Um, and if we don't see sort of major reform taking place, then we're not going to really see the continent, you know, realizing its its true potential. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you, especially on the last part. Thanks a lot for those details. Look, in the article, you also mentioned the special drawing rights, the SDRs, uh, as an example of the limitations of the instruments that these financial institutions have. Can you explain to our listeners what these special drawing rights are? and why you consider the recent developments concerning them a fiasco, as you wrote in your article. SDRs, or Special Drawing Rights, they are in, they're an international reserve asset. And the IMF created the SDRs in 1969. And the purpose of that really was to supplement the existing reserves of IMF member states. Now, and this is something that often people confuse SDRs for, SDRs aren't a currency, they're rather like a basket of currencies, five currencies actually to be exact. So this includes the US dollar, the pound, the euro, the Japanese yen, and the Chinese renminbi. So in 2021, the IMF made a huge announcement, a historical global allocation of SDRs. It was worth 650 billion USD, which is a huge amount. That's approximately um, 450, 456 million SDRs. Um, And that was done really to support countries that at that time were recovering from the impacts of COVID-19. And now SDRs, they're a very unique financial instrument and they're a very important financial instrument. Um, and there's many reasons for that, but um, first, SDRs, they don't come with any conditionalities, which is you know very important for many countries, uh, including African countries. And they don't create any additional debt um, for member states. And countries can exchange the SDRs that they received to any of those the, the five currencies that I mentioned um, through something called voluntary trading agreements, which the IMF facilitates. And with this um, additional liquidity, they can use that for a plethora of things, including paying off their debt um, and you know supplementing their current reserves and, and much more, really. Um, now, this all sounds all great, but the problem becomes visible when we have a closer look and see how much African countries actually received um, and in proportion to the rest of the world. So... From that 650 billion USD, only 33 billion was allocated to the African continent as a whole. So all African countries combined were uh, were getting SDRs amounting to 33 billion USD, and that is only five percent 
of the total amount. Um, and the, and we can also go into things like, you know, there's also inequality within the continent uh, in terms of how much SDRs are distributed. Um, as you know, the top 10 African countries, for instance, um, account for around 62% of that 33 billion. And this is really because of the way that IMF distributes SDRs in the first place, which is according to a country's quota share. Um, and for most of us who know this, this you know it's high-income countries that receive the most um, from that uh, from that pot. And so this unfair distribution has raised a really important question. You know, how can we get more SDRs? to low and middle income countries and specifically how do we get more SDRs to the African continent and it's an important question but the answer is quite you know it's quite simple you know these wealthy countries which we know have the highest quota share and thus have the most SDRs they have billions of SDRs that are just they're just sitting and they're not being used and reallocating reallocating them to the African countries is the easiest um and most clear solution to that. Um, and France, as I mentioned in my article that you, that you just mentioned as well, you know, they made a very important proposal to, to G20 countries to reallocate 100 billion of their unused SDRs, which um, recently at the Paris summit in June, um, the IMF confirmed has, has been reached. But when you look a bit closer, what you see is that from that 100 billion amount, first and foremost, most of it has gone to two IMF instruments, the PRGT, which is the Poverty Reduction Growth Trust that provides concessional financing, and the Resilience and Sustainability Trust, which is a new IMF instrument and focuses mostly on climate and like pandemic, pandemic response. And these two instruments, while important, they have very limited capacity in terms of how much, how many SDRs they accept. Um, and so that's one problem on its own. But the biggest issue is that disbursement to the continent, to the African continent, is very little. Um, so to put this in perspective, Rwanda is the only African country as of now that has benefited from the Resilience and Sustainability Trust. If we look at, let's say, figures from 2021 to 2022, African countries only received 10.9 billion through the Poverty Reduction and Growth Trust that I just mentioned. And so from all these different scenarios, what we're seeing is that these international responses are just not adequate, right? So wealthy countries really need to be able to reallocate their SDRs to the continent. And more than that, they need to do it through African financial institutions, such as you know the African Development Bank, that has put forward a really interesting and innovative proposal called the hybrid capital instrument that can take contributions um, from, from wealthy nations and then on lend them to African countries. Cool. You've also stated that from an African perspective, it is clear that these international responses from the initial skewed allocation to the general amorphous pledges have been inadequate and should not be repeated in this or other context. Quoting from your article now. So what, in your opinion, should the role of these international financial institutions be in helping African countries deal with climate change, for example? International financial institutions, they have a very important role to play in helping African countries and more broadly, low and middle income countries in dealing with in dealing with climate change. And a figure I always sort of 
find myself going back to recently um, is, is one from the African Development Bank. They do something called the Economic Outlook where they release really important figures around climate and other economic uh, other economic figures. And one of the estimates made from the bank is that the African continent as a whole needs as much as 2.8 trillion USD until 2030 to implement you know, the climate commitments set by countries during the 2015 Paris Agreement. So that number really should illustrate in people's minds how much is needed and how much is at stake. And so I think one of the simplest ways that these institutions, these international financial institutions can support the continent is by simply providing much needed climate finance to support these countries as they cope with their climate challenges. And as I mentioned previously, you know, MDBs cannot and should not feel comfortable being as risk averse as they are, um, as they have been for all these years. And so, you know, even just looking at the independent expert panel that I mentioned, uh, MDBs can unlock billions more in financing to countries across the world by taking these very simple measures. And so that's one major step that, you know, these institutions can take to help African countries when dealing with climate change. Thanks. And then what about the role of other institutions such as the NDB or what is also called the Briggs Bank? Or, for example, the African Development Bank, what role could they play? The African Development Bank and the the New Development Bank, they have very important roles to play um, as MDBs. For instance, the African Development Bank um, has played a vital role and can play an even bigger role um, in securing new climate finance for the continent. This can be done through innovative financing mechanisms like SDRs that I just mentioned to really be able to provide concessional loans. Um, And this also includes, you know, for instance, these banks strengthening their relationships. So with with countries, so the African Development Bank can strengthen relationships with, with other countries, can work with the private sector, China, for instance, is a long-standing partner of the African Development Bank and the continent overall. So really leveraging that relationship and using that commitment um, that China, for instance, is making globally into the continent uh, effectively is one way of securing that finance. And the New Development Bank similarly um, has African countries such as South Africa um, and Egypt, for instance, as, as members that can also play a role in mobilizing that finance and really soliciting that support um, of other members, such as you know India and China. And so these institutions really should look at you know supporting countries both on a country by country basis, but also even looking at supporting financing uh, for cross border projects that sometimes are just not talked about enough as well. Um, even the African Development Bank, for instance can tap into the AFCFTA, the African uh, Continental Free Trade Agreement, to support local manufacturing, for instance. And so there's many opportunities um, for any MDB or financial institution to to play a part um, in in this climate action. Still staying on the topic of the African Development Bank, over the last two years, it has been designing an HDI, a hybrid capital instrument, Explain to our listeners, please, what is this hybrid capital instrument all about and how could this contribute to the region's development? So the the African Development Bank's hybrid capital instrument, it's a proposal 
that AFDB has been working on uh, for quite a while, for about two years, I believe, that will essentially allow the bank to receive SDRs as contributions from high-income countries, and then basically take those SDRs and then on-lend them, so basically lend them out to African countries. So what makes the hybrid cap capital instrument important is, well, first, it meets the IMF's requirement uh, of maintaining the reserve asset status. As I mentioned, SDRs are a reserve asset. And so one major concern from, you know, a lot of you know richer countries is that doesn't maintain the reserve asset status, and uh, that's something that the IMF has confirmed it will. It actually just confirmed it um, this week during COP28, and so it maintains its status uh, as a reserve asset. Um, and more importantly, the bank is able to leverage any contribution that it gets through this instrument up to three to four times. Um, so that means, let's say, France contributed 10 billion USD, the bank will be able to multiply that 30 to 30 to 40 million USD. And the way that that works, quite simply, is that AFDB receives those SDRs. They are kept in the IMF, um, and they're basically put on the, the balance sheet of, of the African Development Bank. But with uh, the new equity that is created from that, the bank can then raise funds within capital markets um, in hard currencies. So from, um, for instance, the currencies that I mentioned, and then on lend them to, to members. And so that means that, you know, any contribution that goes to the hybrid capital instrument can really be leveraged a huge amount. Um, and it's a proposal that, you know, is quite direct and, and really opens up, opens up many opportunities. Um, and, you know, one of the things that we always say at Development Reimagined is that, you know, no one understands the the plight and the needs of African countries more than Africans themselves, right? And so African financial institutions always need to be supported um, when it comes to spring development and growth on the continent, because really they know where the needs are, they know which projects need the most financing, and therefore, it only makes sense that they should be the ones that receive the most financing. Um, and, you know, not to mention, you know, AFDB is a multilateral development bank. It has a triple A rating and a very great reputation for delivering results. So, you know, if if countries are comfortable working with AFDB on other issues or contributing to capital to the bank, then there really is no reason why countries shouldn't feel comfortable lending their SDRs. Um, and also an important point, this is not a loan, right? And this is a grant. Um, so, and, and that's very important for, for countries to understand. And, and we've done quite a lot of analysis on this at Development Reimagined. So in the last forum um, on, you know, on China-Africa cooperation, FOCAC, in late 2021, China committed to reallocate uh, 10 billion USD of their SDRs to the African continent. And we actually did a, a report recently that looked into, you know, what are the options for, for China if they wanted to rechannel their SDRs? And we used different criteria. We really tried to understand, you know, what are African priorities and also what are Chinese priorities? And the African Development Bank came up as the number one 
choice, the number one channel um, that met all of those criteria. And so the facts are really there. Um, AFTB has created a really great opportunity, a great avenue for, for wealthy nations to reallocate their SDRs um, that meets the reserve asset characteristic um, and also doesn't cause any additional burden to these wealthy nations. Um, and, you know, it's really unfortunate, even though countries didn't commit uh, as of now uh, to this hybrid capital instrument, I think there's still quite a lot of hope. Um, and, you know, it really does still beg the question, why aren't countries making those commitments? And it really does all come down to to having that political will. Thanks, thanks. Yeah, that makes total sense. You know, at the moment, uh, COP28 is underway, right? And it's it's actually soon about to end. What is your take on the conference so far? The COP28 discussions, uh, as you mentioned, they began last week um, in Dubai. And there have been quite lengthy discussions um, on various climate issues with a plethora of, of commitments being announced on, on various fronts. And we'll continue until the 12th of December. So there's there's still quite opportunity for more opportunities for announcements and, and discussions to take place. I believe as of today, we are currently at 83 billion um, in climate finance that's being committed so far. Um, and includes many different kinds of commitments. So we have energy commitments that are 6.8 billion right now, commitments in lives and livelihoods, which is at 8.5 billion. And so we're really seeing major declarations come out um, as well on renewable energy, on food systems and much more. And so we are seeing good progress so far, even though we're at the, at the midway point. Um, I think maybe just to speak a bit about the SDR outcome at COP28, there was a high-level event that took place on Monday where the IMF, along with you know, the African Development Bank and the Inter-American Development Bank, they, they hosted an event. And there was quite a lot of expectation that you know, wealthy nations would finally, after, you know, after a huge push, make official contributions to the hybrid capital instrument I, I just mentioned. And unfortunately, we didn't see any official contribution, but we are beginning to see countries. So for instance, France and Japan have started to express more interest um, and even spoke about you know, giving liquid, liquidity guarantees. And so we're seeing countries um, understanding the proposal a bit more um, and showing it more interest in the hybrid capital instrument in general. But you know, it's still, you know, it's disappointing to see that there isn't yet enough political will because the AFDV has put forward such a great proposal. But it's still a lot of hope and I, and I think it's very important to stay positive. And so we are seeing a lot of commitments being made, but uh, I still think uh I still think that you know um, high-income countries can can do a bit more and commit more when it comes to climate finance and also supporting really important innovative mechanisms like SDRs. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I hope so too. You must have heard that at the opening of COP28, uh, the loss and damage fund established last year amounted to 700 million US dollars. Could you explain to our listeners what this loss and damage fund is and how effective is it in the initiative in combating climate injustice? Well, we all know it's it's countries that have contributed the least to the current climate crisis that are affected 
the most by climate disasters, unfortunately. And, you know, we're seeing a rise in climate issues such as, you know, drought, heat waves, you name it. And and global warming has only made these issues worse. Um, and that has caused more severe and more frequent disasters. And, you know, African countries, for instance, they contribute the least to climate change and yet are the most vulnerable to its to its impacts, which is so unfortunate. And put very simply, the, the purpose of the loss and damage fund is to support communities um, and to support countries that are dealing with losses as a result of a climate disaster. So the loss and damage fund was adopted last year during last year's COP, COP27 um, in Egypt. And the the fund is going to be overseen by the World Bank for, I believe, four years. Um, and, you know, although there was agreement to establish the fund um, last year during COP27, there throughout this year, throughout 2023, there's been very lengthy disagreements on, you know, how should the fund uh, how it should how the fund should be funded um, and how should it be managed. And so the. The loss and damage fund is important as it in many ways fills in the gaps that other climate institutions and other funds uh, don't fill. But ultimately, it's important because it provides a safety net um, for countries that are affected by climate disaster um, and for countries that previously really had no way of accessing this kind of finance. And so the important issue right now when discussing loss and damage is, and that needs to be addressed is, you know, how do we get more funding into this fund to support the people that need it most? And 700 million is a start, but it's really nowhere near enough, unfortunately. Yeah, which is actually my next question. You know, to anyone, 700 million USD sounds like this huge, immense amount that, you know, anyone would dream of having, of course. But can you explain to our listeners how relevant is this amount? Is it substantial? Because as you said, it's uh, not enough, but just so that our listeners could you know, understand why it's not enough. And then, of course, who decides who gets access to these funds? During this you know, COP28, we saw a lot of pledges to, to the loss and damage fund. This you know, included contributions from the European Union, from the United States, the UK, um, the EU, uh, the sorry, the the UAE, um, which committed to 100 million, and so, you know, in terms of you know who gets the funds, I think I'll just maybe answer that first. It, it will be developing countries, particular vulnerable countries, that will be eligible to benefit from the fund, but you know, more greater details in this are yet to be disclosed or dis- or decided on, and so that's just generally who will be able to access it. Um, and it's also really important to note that, you know, the financing for the fund will not come solely from countries. It's also expected to include grants and other forms of financing, for instance, like from the private sector. And so the really important question is, you know, as you said, is 700 million enough? And simply put, no, it isn't. So and actually very far from it. So. There are estimates that the annual cost of the of the damage caused by climate disasters ranges between 100 billion to 580 billion. 
So the amounts that are pledged is barely enough to even get the fund running. So, you know, if you have hundreds of billions that are needed to make a big difference, you know, for countries and communities, um, then, you know, really expect wealthy nations to be able to make additional commitments. So as you said, you know, the really important question is, is 700 million enough? And simply, no, it is not um, far from it, actually. So there are estimates that, you know, the annual cost of the damage that's caused by climate disasters ranges between 100 billion to around 580 billion. So the amounts that are pledged is barely enough to get the fund uh, to get the fund running. So hundreds of millions, hundreds of billions are needed to make a big difference for countries and for communities. And so wealthy nations need to make those additional commitments that truly and accurately reflect the nature of the climate crisis that we find ourselves in. Esther, well, you said that it's mostly developing countries that will get access to the loss and damage fund. But who decides what countries are going to get the access at the end of the day? From my understanding, there has not been a clear demarcation of, for instance, African countries will receive a certain percentage of the fund. So that is one of the things, um, from what I understand, is still yet to be is still yet to be decided. We just know that as of now, the fund is going to be going to just countries that are vulnerable and that need it most. But specifically, who will decide that, and also which countries or regions will benefit more or less is still yet to be determined. All right. I see. I see. Look, on the point that you made uh, about the developed countries not contributing enough, right? The US, for example, donated around 17.5 million to the loss and damage fund. But at the same time, its military spending on Ukraine, right, amounts to 46.6 billion What is this enormous gap in funding? Tell us about U.S. priorities. Well, it's obvious that the amount contributed so far to the fund is very low, uh, considering the magnitude of the challenges um, that the fund is expected to address. Now, wealthy nations like the United States are obviously expected to contribute more, and failing to do that is, you know, it's not discharging their responsibility. The United States, you know, in particular, being one of the big greenhouse emitters, should contribute more um, and be an example to other wealthy nations um, in supporting low and middle income countries that are heavily affected by by climate change. Um, and so, it is encouraging uh, to see much more commitments coming out of, you know, for instance, the EU um, and the UAE, uh, who as I mentioned previously, committed $100 million. So I think it's really a high time for the United States to really reconsider its position um, and demonstrate its commitment and also the political will uh, by really increasing uh, contributions to the fund. And, and hopefully we can see more positive change uh, on that front soon. Okay, thanks. And lastly, which steps from the international community does Africa need to see progress in climate finance? And how important are African climate problems in the global context? For the African continent, approximately 500 billion is needed in climate finance by 2030. So African countries need to see more finance 
they need to see more technical support um, and more capacity building. And so it's by receiving that necessary support that African countries can truly harness their potential, that they can effectively use their resources um, and meet, you know, the SDGs as well as other, you know, continental development goals such as Agenda 2063. So the international community, specifically international financial institutions, can help with all of this by really ensuring that they have, for instance, climate components um, in their project designs by consciously looking at the climate benefits and challenges and all the projects um, that they're financing. And also doing things like making specific commitments to direct a certain percentage of their investments, for instance, into uh, climate finance. So um, I know the African Development Bank, for instance, commits to about 40%, to direct 40% of all of their investments into climate finance. And so that's one very simple measure that you know uh, international financial institutions can make. Um, another thing that you know the international community can do uh, is to support countries in developing their NDCs, their national determined national determined contributions, um, and support African countries in their long term strategies, and really work with them to progressively you know to progressively increase the volume in finance um, that goes that goes into these instruments and for instance for green growth and all of that, and so. Ultimately, climate change, you know, is a threat to sustainable development. Ultimately, climate change is a threat um, to sustainable development in, on the continent. And as I mentioned previously, African countries that re contribute the least to greenhouse gas emissions have to suffer the most and they have to pay the price for it. And so climate action is linked to sustainable development, it's linked to poverty reduction, and investing in adaptation and mitigation in green growth, the loss and damage fund that we discussed earlier, and environmental goods manufacturing, for instance, are some of the ways to mitigate the adverse effects of climate change on the continent. Um, so environmental goods manufacturing is something actually that um, is not discussed about enough. And at Development Reimagined, we actually recently wrote a report on this so for, for those who don't know, environmental goods are their products, their technologies that contribute to environmental protection and sustainability. And this includes things like wind turbines and solar panels and electric vehicles and, and, and that sort. And so these um, environmental goods value chains play a very critical role in achieving net zero emissions. And the African con continent contributes to only 1% of global uh, environmental good exports. And if you look at countries like China, for instance, uh, who have 17% of global exports. And so we see this huge gap. And so there's room for, you know, for Africa, for other stakeholders to really invest um, in these like in environmental goods and in establishing these uh, regional manufacturing hubs. And so I think in general, um, just to conclude, I think, you know, just really leveraging the potential of African financial institutions, such as African Development Bank, Afri Exim Bank, um, and other regional development banks is essential because these institutions really have a unique comparative advantage um, to, to channel financial resources 
And ultimately, they are the ones that understand the needs and they're the ones that understand the constraints on the ground. And so it's really important that we that we focus on those as well. Ms. Estehi Watkebre, thank you very much for joining me today once again on the Afrovertic podcast for analyzing this complicated issue, dissecting it and digesting it for our listeners. Now to cover the grain shipments arriving from Russia into several African countries, uh, let's invite Dr. Tafazwa Ruzive, a professor in development finance from South Africa's Nelson Mandela University. Coming right up. Dr. Ruzive, thank you very much for joining me today. I hope you're well, sir. It's a pleasure to have you join me on the Afroverdict podcast. So the first shipment of grain that Russia had promised to deliver free of charge to several African countries has arrived in Somalia last week. And very soon we're expecting to see the grain arriving in Burkina Faso. How would you comment on these events? This is a positive uh, development from Russia. After President Putin promised in July, uh, that he is going to get uh, grain to Africa, July 2023. Uh, I would say as African countries, we are happy that he has fulfilled this promise. Um, we have seen reports of grain arriving in Somalia, 25,000 tons, about the, the, uh, over the weekend, I think, the beginning of this week. And the other ship, Burkina Faso, is going to, is, should get there anytime soon. So this is a positive development to have a promise fulfilled and most importantly on a critical issue such as grain uh, for Africa. So we are happy with this development and more importantly, we are happy uh, because of Russia uh, showing itself to be a reliable partner for Africa. Apart from the other countries, Russian grain is soon expected to arrive in Mali. How will this contribute to the country's food security, in your opinion? At that point, I wanted to allude to in the previous response was uh, the link between food insecurity, uh, food security and uh, political instability. Um, Russia's contribution in food security is even more critical when you look at how uh, food security contributes to stability in the region. Uh, we have had uh, there um, there are political developments uh, in West Africa around Mali there. Where they could be, where the situation could be precarious, but if you put in food security, you reduce drastically the chances of political instability. So above uh, fulfilling its promises, we are happy with how Russia is 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 anchoring uh, political stability on the African continent through addressing um, uh, vulnerabilities such as food security, especially in countries like Mali. So. Um, we are happy that there is an anchor for political stability. Russia is not only providing food to people, it's providing an anchor for political stability in West Africa through this grain contribution. The Soviet Union used to help African countries and had in fact very close ties with the continent. Can these new grain deliveries be seen as a continuation of the friendly relations with the USSR? This is, uh, these grain deals are showing uh, the longevity and the resilience of the commitment of uh, the uh, formerly the USSR and now uh, Russia to 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 helping Africa out to be a positive partner for Africa. We uh, as Africans we read into it as continue as a continuation of um, those old ties we have since from the 1970s 
and um, they are uh, hel- helping us in critical areas in the development of, of our states. So we, we we view this as a continuation of that um, of that relationship, and are more and are more grateful about the dimensions in which it is taking now, uh, given the fact that we know before it was uh, basically it was most like it was military military aid for independence. Now it is becoming, um, you know, economic aid uh, for the sustenance for the sustenance of these created states. So we are very happy about the resilience of the uh, continuation of the agreement and the new avenues in which it is growing uh, on a day-to-day basis, given this grain given this grain deliveries that have been done uh, to to friends of Russia. Look, the collective West doesn't seem to appreciate the strengthening of relations between Africa and Russia. What is your explanation for this? When you look at the issue of grain, I would look at it as um, why the West the West cannot be happy about the grain that is coming in, the aid that is coming in, the developing friendship that is coming in, because through sanctions and in response to through sanctions in response to the invasion on Ukraine. Uh, the, the, the one half of um, the West approach is to isolate Russia on the international stage. But Russia is, is, is friends and has fallen back onto those uh, old relationships that it has had. It is meeting critical needs of its uh, friends and therefore not expanding, but just maintaining its influence, you know, influence that nascent influence that it had over the that it had over the continent. So as Russia continues to be a reliable partner, now even in economic aid, the old friends are coming back and, and Russia is actually uh, coming out of isolation or not isolated because of the friends that it has all over the world. And this means that um the 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 the, the pro, uh, I could say the 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 political side or the propaganda side of isolating Russia falls by the wayside when Russia shows that it has so many friends uh, around the world outside of you know outside of we know also know the the, the economic uh, the economic sanctions like the, the the oil cap and the closing of fertilizer and grain exports that we also know are failing. So on the propaganda side or the political side, uh, Russia showing that it has friends around the world shows that uh, the isolationist approach the West is using is falling by the wayside. It's not working. The volume of these new deliveries is equal to the volume established in the so-called grain deal from which Russia actually withdrew because of the unfavorable conditions. So to what extent can these new grain deliveries compensate for this withdrawal of Russia from the grain deal? If we look at them, if we compare the volumes uh, the volumes that are that have been replaced, uh, they are equal uh, to the volumes that could have been there in the initial grain deal. The the the, the cracks behind or the, the the problem or the nub of the problem of the issue behind uh, supplying the same quantity in the grain deal versus supplying Russia alone is that the West through Ukraine was using African hunger as a bargaining chip on the table to try and uh, force Russia to make concessions in the Ukraine-Russia war, uh, hanging their hopes that Russia would feel guilty, that people in Africa are feeling hungry because it is closing the, uh, the, 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 the Black Sea. However, 
Russia through its initiative to deliver the uh, the supposed grain that was supposed to be achieved through the Black Sea grain deal has extinguished, has neutralized that bargaining chip on the part of the West with respect to arm twisting Russia uh, to concede to 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 concessions to make concessions in the Russian-Ukraine war, so that the, the 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 hunger of African people can no longer be used as a bargaining chip uh, by the West in Ukraine because of the actions that Russia has done. And the grain that has been replaced, the quantities, uh, is sufficient to, to, to meet the grain needs that these countries need going through this difficult time that they are going through. So it has been a success on numerous levels. While Russia is one of the world's largest producers of grain and fertilizers, Western sanctions against Moscow have disrupted supply chains and financial settlements. How do people in Africa perceive this hostility aimed at Russia? The way we view it is, is again, the West is using Africa. The West is using Africa as a bargaining chip on the table by blocking, doing business with Russia. Uh, we can't import fertilizer and, uh, and diesel from Russia and, and fuel because of these Western sanctions. So we, are, we get hungrier and we have got food insecurity and got food instability. So you might begin to see the, the propagation of, of, a, of a policy, uh, of an African policy through, what, through the actions of the West with Russia. The Western, uh, the, what we can deduce from, what, uh, from this uh, grain, uh, from the grain deal negotiations uh, and the sanctions on Russia is that um, the West, uh, the West relies on, on food insecurity causing political instability in African countries to establish, um, a regime change on the African continent. And this situation, they are leveraging this situation to cause more instability in Africa instead of trying to find a solution uh, with Russia that keeps Africa food secure and politically stable. So, um, our view is that the American approach is very uh, difficult for us. It, it it increases our food insecurity and our political instability. And in response to this, this really makes Russia's intervention of just supplying the grain outside of the political discussions something to be emulated, something to be copied by uh, all, all political practitioners all over the world because you cannot use Africans for Africa's vulnerability to try and settle political scores uh, in in other in other parts of the world in this geopolitical system. And what are the advantages of Russia's approach to the grain issue compared to that of the Western countries? Uh, you will also find in the propagation of of the of Western of the Western approach to uh, to international policy, international or foreign policy. Uh, but if if it was a Western country, or rather you can just compare Western aid and Russian aid in this situation, Western aid usually comes with uh, conditions on uh, on a lot of issues in the country, on culture, on, on uh, political institutions, on the political and economic trajectory of the country. Whereas uh, Russia's aid in this instance has come with no strings attached. And it comes in... in the, and uh, solves a problem that is at the nub of most of the of, of desperate African countries. Somalia has not yet uh, rained for six consecutive seasons. Uh, the Kina Faso could also be uh, in a drought. Down here in Zimbabwe, I uh, will look at even Eritrea, 
uh, due to climate change, we've got vulnerabilities. So while one policy takes advantage of vulnerabilities that are existing in, in African countries, uh, the other one is actually supporting to try and make relations by closing those vulnerabilities. So Russia is Russia's approach in delivering grain is a superior uh, approach to what the West does when it gives aid with, aid with strings attached, whereas Russia is actually first fixing the vulnerabilities that an African state could have, then from there, try and make relations. In addition to this grain delivery, Russia is intensifying its relations with Burkina Faso and other Sahel Alliance members. So, for example, a defense agreement has just been signed with Niger and exchanges on energy and the supply of fertilizers and petroleum products to Mali are also underway. What do you think about the prospects of this new policy? This policy is a positive for Africa because one, it circumvents uh, the Western uh, the Western monetary system. Number two, it circumvents uh, the Western SWIFT system. Number three, it uh, it it provides funding. It provides um, an exchange. It provides what uh, Niger needs in terms of development in exchange for what it can give in development. So this is a better way of doing business than uh, Mali selling its its outputs into the dollar system and then having conditions placed on its dollars to do trade. Uh, Russia also benefits in being able to to obtain uh, minerals and uh, resources that it needs from Niger on a fair deal. So it's a win-win situation. And most importantly, it provides Russia with an avenue to be able to extend its friendship across the world, as well as deepen its economic ties with Africa. Thank you very much, Doc, for sharing this information with our listeners. In fact, since we are talking about shipments, a Russian company, Ural Him, has sent yet another humanitarian batch of over 23,000 tons of fertilizers to Zimbabwe. This shipment is the company's fourth donation of fertilizers to Africa. The company has sent more than 100,000 tons of fertilizers to the continent, and over 77,000 tons of this volume has been shipped from the European Union ports and warehouses to Malawi, Kenya, and now Zimbabwe. Dear listeners, I hope you enjoyed today's uh, podcast. Stay tuned for updates on the Sputnik Africa Telegram channel and other socials. Likewise, you can find more Afroverdic episodes on various podcasting platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Deezer, Pocket Casts, AfriPods, Podcast Addict, as well as CastBox. That's a wrap up for today's episode of the Afroverdic Podcast. Hope you found our discussion interesting and I'll see you next time. Afro Verdict, brought to you by Sputnik Africa.